0: Hey everyone. Welcome to All Things Iceland. It's Jules and I'm so excited to have the guest that I have today. Her name is Meg, Meg Matic. I'm Hopefully I'm saying that correctly. And she, like myself, is also from the United States and she is a poet and a translator. And actually I'm going to read a little bit about her biography just so you can see all the amazing things that she's been up to. So as I mentioned, a poet and translator that lives in Reykjavik, Iceland, and she earned her Master's of Fine Arts from Columbia University and has received support for her work from the Banff Center, PEN America, and the Fulbright Commission, and she's a frequent collaborator with Reykjavik UNESCO and a friend of UNESCO Live. Meg is the author of the poetry chapbook, Cold, and if I believe correctly, that's coming out this year, 2022. And so excited about that. So hopefully if there's a link um, later on that we can share, I will definitely do that in the description box. And among other projects, Meg has collaborated with poet Magnus Sigurdsson on an anthology of Icelandic poetry, translated a book of essays in honor of former president Vykti Svenpogatotir and translated the 2021 novel, Magma, which ended up winning for Meg uh, one of the best translations of the year for 2021, according to Oprah Daily. Meg is one of the few immigrants in the Icelandic Writers Union and considers that membership quintessential for her life in Iceland. So welcome, Meg, to the show. Thanks, Jules. And it is a absolute pleasure to have you. And of course, I have Lots of different questions for you, especially around like poetry and translation. But first, I would like to talk about or at least get an idea to the audience why it is that you ended up in Iceland. I feel like every person (laughs) gets this question who's not from here. So it's it's kind of like our good starting point.
1: Yeah. I mean, you do have to start somewhere, right? If if I I were an Icelandic person, you might ask, and I were born in Akureyri, you might ask, how did you end up in Reykjavik? Um. Indeed. So I ended up in Iceland because I'm a compulsive at Columbia. I applied for a fellowship to travel to Slovakia to translate Slovakian poetry with my very handsome ex-boyfriend, who is not a translator, but is very handsome <laughs> um, and speaks and speaks and is Slovakian. Um, and on, along the way, I was going to stop off in Germany and just take the train to Slovakia, and in Germany I was doing a separate translation project of German. And so it was asked by one of my classmates that I stop in Iceland on the way and see if I like Icelandic, um, and so I did. And after spending, um, I think, five days here on, a, on an Icelandic layover and listening to the, the musicality of the language, which to me, it's always sounded like cicadas, like cicadas mm. in some in Pennsylvania. Um I engaged some people, um, I don't want to say on the street, but servers and cashiers and people in bookstores, and asked them about the language, how to say certain things that one would normally want to say, like, thank you, excuse me, mm-hmm. please, you're welcome. But I also asked, how <laughs> how does your grammar work? Um, <laughs> do you decline? How much do you decline? Do you have genders? You know, and mm-hmm. found out that this mapped pretty well to some of the language competencies i already had um at that moment in addition to these other languages that i was flirting with german i already knew um i was also learning russian Mm -hmm. Uh, so devoting like 12 hours a week or something to russian studies
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and realized that icelandic and russian in many ways can overlay each other grammatically they're not you know they're not like best friends um, they're different language families. Mm-hmm. They have gr- major grammatical features in common. Um, peculiarities like declining the numbers one through four in three mm-hmm. gender, um, and in you know and in four cases, they both do this kind of weird. I mean, interesting, interesting, flavorful stuff. So that is how I ended up in Iceland. I decided once I had learned Icelandic to translate it and then mm-hmm. to move here. Okay, that was a really long answer. No, it wasn't. I mean, in terms
0: of like connecting the dots, it makes a lot of sense, and it's kind of cool that it also gives a lot of background regarding your language learning abilities and journey to a degree. And I'm just wondering, when you decided to move, how did you go about learning Icelandic? Is it strictly the university? Is that where you found like you're a solid base, or was it something else?
1: Um, I I tend to I guess I tend to learn by reading um, when I was translating cold moons, which is Magnus Sigerson's poetry book. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I was, I was doing it with a lot of dictionaries and not the ones that are typically used. Like I was finding some like janky online dictionaries and using, you know, Google translate to figure out certain words or um, mm. I was using this also 150 um, year old dictionary that's hosted by the university of Wisconsin um they're still updating it you know this yes I do I use it too (laughs) I took I figured I figured out how to properly use it after like a year but you know it got me there and Magnus and I met at one point and he really liked the work I had done even though there were there were a lot of mistranslations and misunderstandings and Mm. um you know even the published book has so many mistakes, mm. um, which I'd like to correct, but it's too late. Anyway. So uh, I lost the thread. Oh, in terms of just how you learned. Oh how yes. Learned it. So, so he taught me partly by Ooh. commenting on my translations. Okay. And then I uh, sat in the living room with my mother at their house for three weeks and um, did flashcards for like, three hours a day and did mm-hmm. online training also. So <laughs> I did do university here. That's why I had a Fulbright grant. Um mm-hmm. I have interesting feelings about that program. It's not as yeah. strenuous as what I'm used to, but okay. it's, it was helpful.
0: That's well. good. I mean, it, I think it's interesting because I've heard such great reviews of the Icelandic as a foreign language as a degree, a four-year degree, I believe is right. And then there's another one that's a certificate and you took the one that's the full degree.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, It's just not, it's kind of slowed pedagogically. So it's, Mm. although I heard that in recent years, they've gotten some more dynamic instructors in and it's become much more motivating. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's I feel
0: like you're being kind, you know, you're doing your best to be kind. (laughs) Like how to explain this experience.
1: (laughs) It's you know, it's good. A couple if you can pick and choose among courses in that program, I think that's probably the better way to go because it's still maturing. Okay. Fair
0: enough. And how has it been for you adjusting to life in in Iceland? I mean, you go from from where did you move from? Was it In New York, were you at Columbia, or did you come from like your hometown?
1: I had an interesting year the year before I moved here, but uh, no, I I moved here right from New York, more or less. I took about six months and went back and forth between um, New York, Pennsylvania, and Minneapolis, where a lot of my friends live. But um, it felt very relieving Hmm. to move here. I think partly because I felt for a long time that I couldn't breathe anymore in New York and Mm -hmm. there was a lot of pressure and I was not able to escape that anxiety and find a space where I could be really creative and so I've been here for almost six years I live in a very quiet large apartment um I'm I spend a lot of my time alone as most of us do now but I'm not constantly engaged with these sort of inputs, these sensory inputs. And Mm -hmm. I feel that I have more time to do better work than I ever have here relative to New York. So I would say the biggest change between them isn't so much, um, it's not as much language and culture for me as it is just uh, a reverence for personal reflection and time to reflect and and space, the physical spaces here, as Mm -hmm. you know, are, um, unlike anywhere else, um, that I have been, I haven't been to a prairie, so I can't tell you what that's like. and I haven't been to a hot desert. Um, so <laughs> like. but, um, but the empty spaces here seem to mirror the type of thinking that it's conducive to. Yeah, so.
0: absolutely. I can agree with that a thousand percent having grown up in New York and, I did also come to a point where I was just ready for the change, especially it felt like things were just closing in with the amount of people and and we've been here for a similar amount of time because I'm almost I'm almost six years as well. So I think it's just kind of funny how there's a decent amount of people I've met who've moved around that same time so I don't know and like this is before the election and everything. so there are a lot of people who this was just on their minds, or needing to gravitate towards Iceland for some reason, at least in the uh, foreign national community. So just kind I've of wondered, weird. I've wondered
1: about this often. Yes, people describe a magnetism. This, mm-hmm. I think of myself as a like a not a not a spiritual person at all, but with Iceland, I feel like there's like a literal magnet in my feet, mm-hmm. the ground. Um, <clears throat>
0: Yeah. There's something, there's something special here for sure. And the creativity part I can also very much relate to. So I think it's really cool. And And yes, the space, like where we're living now, I literally can look outside and I see the mountains. And that's just not something I ever experienced in New York. Now, granted, in other places in the US, you might have this, but for the most part, it's weird. In a way, to feel like you're in this little big city where you can have mountains and then have, you know, the metropolitan area. <laughs> it's <laughs> tiny, but it works, I think. <laughs> the yeah, exactly. I know I have to quote, quote it because it's like, <laughs> because some people laugh and they're like, um, no, but yes, I say yes. Okay, so you're a poet, which is amazing. And I'm just wondering for your poetry because like, you write your own poetry and then of course you translate, but for your own, where do you get ideas from in order to create poetry?
1: I'll tell you what, I don't know, but, um, I think a lot of it, uh, you know, I, I gave you this long explanation at the beginning of the call about language, my relationship to language. I think a lot of it comes from etymology. Mm-hmm. Um, curiosity about the multiple meanings a single word can have and the relationships that word can have I think that that's where I get a lot of power as a writer mm-hmm. and I think that's the core of my um my style but um but I also find myself very I don't want to quote him um a spontaneous outpouring of emotion, you know, recollected in tranquility. Um, I find I find myself very drawn to nature and the the very yep, there she goes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the power of it. Um lately I've been writing ever since I finished Cold, which was partly about Iceland, partly about New York, and partly about Greenland, which I, I've never been to Greenland. Um I may be translating Greenlandic author soon. Nice. But, um, the The most recent poems I've been writing, I like I call them wind cantations, and I only write them at two thirty in the morning. Um, <laughs> after, my, after my midnight walk, I take a walk at midnight, especially. Oh, if, <laughs> I do. So we've been. Ha- it's very safe here, right? yes um,
0: exactly we've been
1: having these hurricane winds lately or like what i qualify as hurricane winds and I'm they are yeah <laughs> uh, but i just go down to the sea anyway and i let them blow me and i let myself feel this experience of having mm. um having a different kind of power right it's mm. not powerlessness when you're being hit by a 40 mile per hour you know wind um yeah. Because you then use your body to stow yourself against this. And so it creates this sense that you are more perhaps vital mm. than you think you are. And so I've been using the wind also as a way to express um, regaining power. So cold was almost mm. like loss of power. And then the wind cantations, which is not going to be the real title, is also um, is a response to that. Um, And those are also intertextual, so they, um, the Icelandic word, I I I kind of think poetically in both languages, Mm -hmm. and in in some other languages as well, but but, but the Icelandic that sort of enters those poems, or when I'm writing them in Icelandic, the English that enters them, they're talking to each other, so, Mm -hmm. for example, E-X-H-A-U-S-T-I-O-N, it's Mm -hmm. not related to the word höst, you know, the yeah. word for autumn in Icelandic, H-A-U-S-T, mm-hmm. it was about the host light. It was about the autumn um, low-pressure zone that creates those hurricane winds. And so I saw this connection between exhaustion and autumn. And mm. okay. Yeah, that's what I write about. I write about yeah, words. Mostly, mm-hmm. So I mostly write about words.
0: yeah. That's pretty cool. And I, I was, like, earlier smiling when you were talking about fighting against the wind, because I think, like, everybody who lives here has got has had this same, um, maybe not purposefully, always, <laughs> like, going out when, even if it's hurricane-level winds. But it is fascinating to hear how you use it for empowerment and then creativity. So, yeah, this... So many possibilities in the world where one person might think that it's an inconvenience and you're like, oh yes, this is what I this is what I you know gather power from for myself or you, you are able to look at it from a
1: different angle as well. I also um, try to think of I, I know very little about um, Icelandic history I know the basic outline of it um, and a few specifics but I also sometimes try to find these uninhabited spaces with bad weather and imagine what it was like for someone who was walking from the north. To the south to go to the mm. althingi, the yeah. you know large parliamentary gathering of the entire country, mm-hmm. and I just, I just imagine what kind of pain their body must have felt or might have felt, and also what kind of comforts it might have felt, um, and what persistence was required to continually make your body do things that it doesn't want to do because it's so tired. Yeah, um, and like I like that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah,
0: absolutely. I think too, like my grandmother says this, who is 92 years old <laughs> and it's kind of messed up to say it, but she's like, your generation is weak in comparison to ours. <laughs> I
1: was like, oh my God. <laughs>
0: I, even when I said it, I said it like almost like a teenager going through puberty, but uh, like weak. And I was just like, wow, grandma. But when she's saying it, I mean, she grew up on a farm in upstate New York where it's close to Canada. So you, they get like really intense storms and with lots of snow, and granted, you know, thankfully she's was able she's able to be alive at the age she is. But what she had to endure is nothing. I don't know anything like this, right? Life wise, and then when you think about or me talking about regarding Icelanders and back then, like what their bodies were capable of hand- handling. A lot of us would be like, "Nope, <laughs> it's like it's not not going to work out for me." Granted, the average lifespan was much lower too, because you are pushing your body to a limit and living in conditions in which it's not. At its most optimal. But uh yeah, just thinking about walking from the north to think Betler. It's just like nah.
1: <laughs>
0: I'm good. Or even
1: on your horse, you know. Hmm? And then and in certainly in worse worse weather than we have experienced while we've lived here. It's been relatively yeah. tame. Yeah. Yeah. I wish, went
0: through a little ice age at one point as well. So that's pretty intense.
1: I wish we collectively had more. Endurance, and that our lives were less reliant on um, these sort of games. I guess I wish that we were mm-hmm. less often trying to outsmart one another um, and trick each other, mm-hmm. and more often trying to maybe I don't know physically compete with each other. Not not like beating the crap out of each other, but like the Olympics um, or something. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe like the Olympics for normal people. Like, let's see how far we can walk together. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna walk together, <laughs> you know.
0: There is a, a joke. I don't know where this is posted, but there is a, a joke Olympics for normal people, and how they've modified the games is hilarious <laughs> in order for normal people to look like they can do something kind of extraordinary. <laughs> I'm gonna <laughs> but do And you're just like, oh no, okay. This one, I'm <laughs>
1: telling you, like, if. <laughs> If there's, if there's a normal people Olympic sport, that's like the longest, the person who can be in the cold tub, mm. which is like eight, eight degrees Celsius or something like this. It depends. Um, some of them are five, some of them are four. <laughs> some of them can be quite cold. But if it's the person who can be in the cold tub the longest, I will always mm-hmm. win. This is another thing with training my body to do things which really suck. Um yeah. I, I I can stay in the cold tub for about twenty minutes right now, mm-hmm. and I have outlasted every. Just want to say it. I have outlasted every man who has ever gone into the tub with me. Mm-hmm.
0: Good for yeah. you. Yeah, it's a mental game. I feel like, and also
1: the breathing is really important when you're in the cold tub. Yeah, I will. I will give credit to a nice Finnish man who taught me how to do it. He just he would hold my hands or lower into the tub, and he would just help me breathe. Mm-hmm. But then he would have to get out. But I would just. Hang out because I'm numb. Yeah. About, like, nice. That's awesome. Yeah, we've
0: <laughs> it is fascinating. And then also for people who don't know, cold tubs are at every pool in Iceland, even like a small town. I've been to places like Sulery, which is in the West Fjords, 200 people, and they have a cold tub made out of an old uh fishing storage bin. <laughs> it's
1: just like, I was like, is it <laughs> that uns- point? <laughs> I mean it's it's pretty inexpensive, right? You just like go. In there.
0: Yeah. I mean, they're a fishing yeah. town. So for them, it's literally costs nothing extra you know, just to lug it over. But okay. Us,
1: so cold tubs hmm? for the cold tubs, go in for 15 minutes, then go in the sauna or hot tub for 15, then repeat like two or three more yeah. times. You feel great. Yeah, it it's, is it's, it When you prove to yourself uh-huh. that your body can do that. It's really yes. marvelous because you can because pain is just pain. It goes away. I mean, you know, if it's something
0: serious yes. to the doctor. But unless like, <laughs> unless it's the pain that's killing you, well, that's a different story. In this case, you can so regulate it. it.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I know, I totally know what you mean. <laughs> okay. And in terms of your trans, you translating see. because you've done many. Do- oh yeah, your cat. I mean, they're just you know making their Very debut, easy. making sure that they're it's known that they're around.
1: <laughs> yeah. They have more strong feelings. Yeah. Continue. Exactly.
0: <laughs> Uh, in terms of your translation, you've done, it. like I mentioned, in your bio for different individuals, uh, yeah. books in particular, like Magma and now Quake, which for everyone, I mean, Quake is recently published in early February. So congratulations on that. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering, what is your process for translating? And I was just, I'm asking because when I interviewed the president of Iceland, with me, he was like, when he was translating that he did not like to read ahead while he was translating. He would translate as he was reading because he enjoyed it so much. And so I was just like, hmm, I wonder what Meg's process is like for this.
1: That's an idea. Sorry, I just got an idea. Maybe I should like reach out and talk to him about translating. I, d- I didn't realize he was also a translator. What is, mm-hmm. can I ask for context? What is he translating? He was um, translating
0: at the time, at least uh, Stephen King books. So he was a big Stephen King
1: Yeah, it was, like, really random when I found this out, and I was like, okay. (laughs) Um, Um, yeah. So, um, how do I say this without making myself sound awful? Um, I used to, this has changed over time, um, as I have gotten older, and I have gotten older, um. It started out. I would read a few poems, like with the Magnus book. Mm-hmm. Can I just grab the? I want to show you what this looks like after I yeah. after I used it. Give me one second. Okay, so this is what Cold Moons is now after I had been. It's wow. Sorry. <laughs> I am a notorious murderer of of books, Um, but you'll see, so as my Icelandic got better, the way that I approached translation also changed, obviously. Here you can see on this page, these notes are from 2013. Wow, okay. Um, Not a a verb, like, you know, just very... You know, female noun, female nominative noun, not a verb, indicative, genitive, not genitive. Yeah. All kinds of all kinds of notations on this. So when I was really reading these, I didn't know what they said. I, I could just tell that they had the formal structures of molest poetry, objectives poetry, which I liked. So um something like an HD or um Often, like these kind of mm. these kind of poets, Loren Niedeker. I've been really interested in. The, and Magnus is also a huge fan of this poet, Loren Niedeker. Um, anyway, so I wouldn't know what it said, so I would just used this Wisconsin dictionary and my other tools to uh, to figure out what the heck it meant. Um, mm-hmm. And then once I had all these puzzle pieces, then I stuck them together. She's doing things. It's really cute. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then the and then the and then the uh, and then the poem would come together. For the second and third books that I did, um, I also had trouble reading. So the second one was a book of essays, and mm-hmm. um, I had only been present in Icelandic for a year and a half. At that point, my Icelandic was still mm-hmm. a mess. I got this back from an editor who's a a surprise editor. I had no idea someone would be editing it. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was just covered in red. And it was like, this is wrong. Um, Because I just made a lot of mistakes. And, Mm -hmm. you know. You you just dove
0: right in, basically, into it. I
1: just dove right in, yeah. And now I have a different way of doing things. So I read the books first. um, Mm -hmm. For one thing, because it's easy for me to read the books now. or Easier and more pleasurable. Right but I also do research, so if I know mm-hmm. that I want to translate the book, then I'm going to try to get contextual information about it. Mm-hmm. so for my next collection, which is also Sab, who's a mid century Icelandic prose writer um, with a very complicated and tragic life mm. um, i I've read her biography, I've read a book of essays about her. I've looked at primary sources and archives um I've researched women who are writing about similar things concurrently in other countries, Um, Mm -hmm. things like this. So I not only gather the contextual information, she was also an artist, so I'm looking at her artwork. I'm looking at mid-century photographs of Reykjavik to understand what she's trying Mm -hmm. to do. So it moved from like a not very very time-intensive endeavor to one with a lot of pre-work and kind of discovery work. Correct. And then there's about 22 drafts that go into wow. it in total for me, because I am obsessive. Um, <sighs> I'm not only a translator and a creative writer and a poet, but I am also a professional editor mm. and also work in marketing. And, you know, <laughs> that changes things. Um but from beginning to end, I have now read I read Quake again the other day, so i now read this book 23 times. I read wow. Magma, the book before this, 21 times um, beginning to End Poetry Books, I can't even tell you how many times you would read those because it's just hmm, Okay <laughs> You give up a lot of your life to it yeah. and so you have to be sure that what you're, what you're doing is worth the time and the language mm-hmm. you choose. chosen it feels good to you um which I mean part of the part of the reason I have so much diversity in my languages isn't only because I'm obsessive but also because I want to have access to more literatures Mm -hmm. I will be learning Ukrainian in the summer which I've been thinking about for years it's unfortunate timing but I will be theoretically in Lviv in a few months yeah um, in the west of Ukraine where they're taking in refugees right now the branch of UNESCO um and then I'm also, I speak Danish as well now. So it will be the Greenlandic novels from Danish, mm-hmm. you know, just trying to integrate a lot of different ways of thinking. And the more manners of thinking and uh, linguistic structures you have in your head, the more things mm-hmm. you can make, the better things you can make right with what you already have. My Icelandic changes, the more I learn Danish or Ukrainian, you know. Um, yeah. My English, my English way of addressing Icelandic changes. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I feel like actually with Icelandic for me, my English sometimes I say things strangely <laughs> because I'm just like, that's <laughs> that's not how I remember saying it in English. But it just kind of comes out that way if you're it's like speaking Icelandic to somebody, or you switch over, and you're just like, oh wow, my brain is changing. Okay, that's cool. But also, I yeah, really
1: like oh, think in my I rescheduled this interview a couple of times. Thank you for moving it. But yeah, I mean, no my messages to you I was putting um you know in English we have an order in which things appear like you know place time whatever um and I was mixing those that order up and doing mm-hmm. it in what I think was a not a not a uh, not an Icelandic way either just like a brain exhaustion way or a German way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: mix of things in terms of like with your Icelandic though like or any language I mean was this did you know from a young age that you wanted to learn lots of languages or is it just something that started happening you were like, Oh yeah, I like this.
1: No, I knew it's just, there weren't, um, I had very, I grew up in a small town in the 1990s in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And there were not a lot of opportunities to learn language. I did grow up in an upper middle-class family, but, um, they were not, I, I did not have the type of family who would have understood the desire to learn French when you're seven years old. Mm. But my very nice parents bought me a CD-ROM for French and a CD-ROM for Spanish when I was eight from the okay. local store. So I started learning nouns and um and like what are called genders. So mm-hmm. I don't know if everyone listening knows what that means. Um, basically grammatically in some other languages we'll take Spanish, for example, um, nouns have a, a he or she a gender. So with she in Spanish, it's la mm-hmm. and for male it's el. And then sometimes mm-hmm. also a neutral gender, depending upon like los would be a neutral mm-hmm. in Spanish, plural. Yeah. Um, So I started learning about the concept of grammatical gender. I don't really understand the origin of grammatical gender, um, and I haven't looked into it. But, you know, I learned some basic things, but didn't really stick to it. And then Mm -hmm. started inventing my own languages. They were pretty basic, you know, silly little things. Like, I think the word for la-la meant I don't want to do it. Uh, and I had my own alphabet and my own orthography. So my own way of writing the words, um, this is what I did during math classes, not very good at math. Um, but I was very good at language. So I just didn't pay attention in math class. Um, and then it's, it just got bigger. I mean, my sister was, is a genius and she, um, was, you know, pretty much fluent in Spanish by the time she was 16 or 18. She doesn't remember it now. She says, um, what? Yeah, I know. She's much smarter. She's very she's a very interesting person. <laughs> but I kind of also followed her lead a little bit. She did, she didn't want to be a linguist. She didn't want to be like me, but I wanted to excel in similar ways to her, as you might imagine mm-hmm. because she was my older sister. So I then started obsessively learning German. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just yeah, it just went from there. Um I had some professors early on in, in college who encouraged this, among them nice. uh, Thomas Ernst and mm-hmm. oh, I just want to name in particular, even though nobody knows who he is, he's um, like mm-hmm. the most special person in my early learning mm. was a German professor and a mm-hmm. polymath
0: and a cryptographer. And a, okay, nice, multi-talented individual. I, mean, I know you say your sister's a genius, but I think you're on—you know—you have genius levels yourself. So it might be hard when you have someone else that you're comparing to that you look up to. But you can—you can own that too if you want. <laughs>
1: so, <laughs> one day we'll see.
0: <laughs> okay, and you—I mentioned in your bio that you're one of the few immigrants in the Icelandic Writers Union. Was that difficult to get into as a foreign national here?
1: It's not. You have to have two basically, and you apply. Mm. Um, and your CV, a statement. It's pretty standard. My, I mean, I did my materials in in Iceland because I think that was that was appropriate, but yeah, um, or maybe it wasn't. I'm I'm not actually sure. You, I wouldn't have had to, but yeah, in Iceland, which is like a very inclusive country in many ways, um, immigrants. Tend to not, are often not aware of all of the opportunities that are available to them, mm-hmm. and so joining something that's called the Icelandic Writers Union mm-hmm. might make you feel like you're not welcome, right. um, rather than like the Writers Union of Iceland, for example. Um, but it felt. It just felt significant to me to be a part of something that was the first time that a um, an adjective Icelandic was ever assigned to me. Mm. Keep it, you know. Yeah. Um, I do think that there could be more, a lot is being done in Iceland right now to open up literature to people of other nationalities or people mm-hmm. from other places who happen to see Iceland as their home. Yeah. But a few years ago, I don't think it was as, it was a little revolutionary about four years ago to say Icelandic literature is not just literature written in Icelandic by Icelandic people.
0: Mm, yeah. So, absolutely. And like you mentioned about the inclusivity, so you felt more included being part of this union. I
1: do. It feels really big and important. Um, I also get discounts at the bookstore, which is nice if you know right. how much book. Nuts.
0: Yeah, they're ridiculously expensive here. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, even to have storytell, which is the audiobook thing, I just I refuse to do it because I'm like I'm not paying these prices. I'm sorry.
1: I this have is- a I have a Danish one called Saxo, so I just listen to Danish audio. Okay, <laughs> then,
0: uh, yes, it's a I good know. workaround.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that the structures here are changing. Um, I think there are some there are some political contentions to they're still pushing back against immigrants, but I think too that a lot of artistic organizations are trying really, really hard to pave the way for people like me to actually contribute. Um, and I think people like me are paving the way for other people. Yeah.
0: It definitely goes both ways. In foreign nationals as well as like the Icelanders who go abroad and come back can bring so much. And then there's also foreign nationals that come here that bring diversity of thought, talents, all these different things that can really just help the society to move forward and evolve, which is awesome.
1: Oxygenation, right? <laughs> they're, I mean, they're carrying oxygenation. Like, mm-hmm. they're People who leave Iceland are carrying carbon out and then bringing oxygen back in. So we mm-hmm. have this ongoing, um, feedback loop, this ongoing cycle of new ideas, you know, importing and exporting. Yeah, absolutely. It's really important for people to leave the island.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is the same thing with, like, you getting out of your small town you grew up in, right? Like, there's similar parallels of being able to then grow as an individual, and also potentially, if you go back there, you would be able to contribute in another way that is different than if you had just stayed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This is this is very true. I wish that there was more I could do. I mean, the town that I grew up in is really small. Yeah, impoverished. Um, Mm. I was my family was the exception. Yeah, there's not even a homeless shelter, even though it's impoverished. Um, yeah, it's in pretty bad shape. It doesn't get much state funding because the test scores of the university are too low. It's very the schools are. There are a lot of problems that I would not rant about here, but I would right. like to have the power and the resources to do something positive, to change that place. Not only for people of my socioeconomic class, you know, but people in other situations and with other yeah. backgrounds. Absolutely. There's potential everywhere, right? There's always. There's always yeah. something to be cultivated just a little, you know, a little, yeah. a little CD-ROM in French.
0: Yeah, so many different possibilities. And yes, well, hopefully in the future, if you figured it out, if it makes sense for you, then you're able to, you know, do that. And I'm putting down here that you're a translator of Icelandic book, Quake, which in essence, like part of our conversation is regarding this book because it's recently been released in terms of published and available in English. So written in Icelandic by Øyður Jónsdóttir and then translated by Meg. And so for those who are curious about that book, which I was reading it, I haven't finished the whole thing, but it's, it's fascinating. And also like, there's some, uh, interesting <laughs> twists to the story that I was not expecting when I started reading and I was like, okay, or uh, and like family secrets and things. And like, all right, well, I find, I found it really enjoyable when I still like at night when I'm getting ready for bed, which I could be good or bad. I'm reading it. <laughs> so it could be that I'm like getting stuff in my sleep. <laughs> it's <kind of> strange. <laughs> oh my god! Channeling channeling
1: mm-hmm. a is experience. I I'll tell you what I did not know how to translate this book mm. or what to do with it until I met her multiple Good. times. You I don't know if you've already interviewed her. Or you yeah, should, I did. Yeah, she's fascinating
0: um, too. Yeah,
1: she's she's a whirlwind, <laughs> and just like she's it's like a whirlwind who swept across countries and is carrying debris with it. She mm-hmm. just. <laughs> Amazing. She's she's amazing. maybe also a psychic. She may also be a psychic. Yeah,
0: yeah. I asked her about her process, and she's like, "It's just chaos. I do it in chaos. Like I write books in chaos because there's so many writers who are like I get up and I do my morning pages. And I, you know they have like this these rituals. She's like, no, it's just like everything is everywhere. And I was like, okay, well some people might you know be able to relate to that, but there are a lot of people out there but like what.
1: <laughs> my writing is yeah my writing right it's like walking at midnight and then the writing yeah, so. the a like it's 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 very strange and backwards but it's very structured
0: <laughs> at the same time I mean that's I think what's and you can say you know for people who want to be translators maybe what you recommend or um, advice you would give them but I think like finding your own style it sounds like that has been in, an important part for
1: you yeah, and finding the the language in which you can mm. find your voice. I don't know how. To, I don't know how to exactly describe this. I do want to say it. Um, when I when I was working with German poetry, um, and this is contemporary German poetry, so mm-hmm. written in the last, I would say, at the time, the last twenty years. So from the nineteen ninety to two thousand and ten ish, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not. And and I mean, and German language poetry is huge. Mm. So I've only read, you know, a fraction of what's out there. But for whatever reason, I was competent at the language, and I'm a, an able translator. But I could not find myself in that language at all, mm. and in the poetry at all. So it wasn't coming out that well, and it still doesn't. I, I translate this really lovely Austrian novelist slash poet, and I get, I still get really stuck. But when I found Magnus Sigerson, um I, I just did a test submission to a a translation workshop I was in with a a woman named Susan Bernofsky mm-hmm. and a fairly well known translator of German. Mm. And she, she stopped me in the hallway after class one day and she said meg you you actually you need to pursue this. this is your voice works in this language or with this mm-hmm. language okay." So I think that you, I think that no matter how, if you can learn 20 languages, that's incredible, but you don't know, I don't think you always find your voice in those languages.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And when you do, you just have to, I don't want to say blindly, but you have to fearlessly pursue it, right? I mean, it's going to be a wind pushing against you too. The language itself, it's going to be complicated. The people are going to be complicated. If you want to relocate, that's going to be really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, But if you love something enough and you find your again, I'm not spiritual, but I want to use this word like Mm -hmm. and you want to find your soul in it, then Mm -hmm. you have to go and look for it. Mm -hmm. There's this really pretty picture on cold moons of a little a little monkey with Yeah. A lantern lantern. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is what I imagine I I found when I came to Iceland, this little firefly lantern monkey. Um, <laughs> this is like my soul, and then this is just like the thing that's bearing the soul, which is Icelandic mm-hmm. Firefly. This was recently reprinted, by the way. Okay. So, second edition. Yeah. Okay. Is through. it available on like readily ava- available I can to buy? To all the books. The publisher okay. is now called Deep Vallum. Deep Vallum. Okay.
0: Yeah, great. So we can I can put that in the description if you are able to send over the link. So share it with yeah. people. They can check it and out And
1: there's but that's I mean, that's my that's my advice for young translators. It's just uh, you know, push. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And then for living in another country or moving to another country, because I, I people are always asking me, like, oh, what do you recommend? And it's like, it is not this A to B. Type of transition, there's mm-hmm. <laughs> like there's all these like things, and it stills that way. I mean, I think for the rest of your life, if you're living somewhere else than what you were accustomed to growing up, there is this constant learning and evolving. So I'm wondering if you have advice to people who
1: want to move to another country, whether it's Iceland or somewhere else. Um, I I did it in a way that's not really that was not well aligned with who I was at the time, which is that I um, I made sure I would be financially secure when I got there for at least. 9 months. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas before that I had been very impulsive I moved to New York City like with internship money. And mm. was, back then it was about back then it was about $10 an hour, which I think is still pretty good for like just the basic standard of living in the mm. US. I mean, people don't get paid that much usually. Anyway, now yeah. but but I moved to New York City on that and like my parents ended up, you know, bailing me out here and there. But when I when I moved to Iceland, I I tried for four years. So I applied for the Fulbright grant, not once, not twice, but three times. Wow. And then I applied for it once in Germany. So I, I did two applications really poorly because I had no idea what I was doing. And I did them basically the night before, which you cannot do with a Fulbright grant. And it's extremely difficult. Right. Um, wow. The largest application I've ever done. Um, yeah. And that thing has to be like airtight. But uh, I, so I tried grants. I tried American Scandinavian foundation grants. I also tried um, university programs and jobs and working Mm -hmm. in, you know, international schools, kind of the things that I would have done if I were trying to move to Germany Um, Mm -hmm. or thought about doing, you know, (laughs) but I would say that the the most important thing was having a financially secure way to do it because you don't know what's going to happen when you get there. And Mm -hmm. there is always a risk no matter where you go, that your um, that your permit to live there will be compromised if things go south. So you need to make sure you're protected. Mm-hmm. Um, this, I mean, this is also like a general rule too for being alive, right? Like yeah. if you can make sure you have three months of savings, um, just apply that rule to moving abroad and you'll be fine. And just like learn a couple of words, make sure you can read every menu. If you're vegetarian, learn the words for meat. Um, yeah it's it that's not yeah i've ordered turkey salads <laughs> <laughs> oh no because <laughs> I, I didn't know the word for turkey because right. i was like hey, words for meats. Yeah. um <laughs> okay i don't know and I, I don't think that helps i mean i'm willing to help anybody who might be interested um yeah
0: i think maybe knowing your rights as a person like a immigrant or a foreign national that would also i mean i think, I think what you said is helpful for sure And just the the rights thing, because it often is the case that we're moving somewhere. And sometimes you're just so happy to be somewhere new that you don't even, you might not realize you're being taken advantage of, right? And this happens on, like, there's groups in Iceland called, you know, scammed in Iceland, meaning people came to volunteer places. And technically, that's against the law. Like, companies can't just be like, oh, you're just going to volunteer for um, food and and accommodations. Like, no, you have to get paid. Like, there's actual laws here that protect you so you're not being abused and some of these people end up being taken advantage of by that individual because of this dynamic of not understanding you know that they are supposed to be paid and not supposed to be working every day for the whole summer
1: i want to make a note here too i was thinking about this the other day um the laws so i've I've had to read a lot of icelandic law at various points because i worked Multiple jobs. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of it is available in English. And so I end up looking mm-hmm. up in the laws. I don't think any of it is. Yeah, I'm not, so sure. I'm not sure
0: if any of it is. <laughs> I'm
1: like, I maybe a lot of helpful, helpful reading for people who think, yeah. you know, don't understand how things work or whatever. But um, I would just like to note here, um, since we have a platform, Icelandic government, please hire me to translate your laws you need to, you need to do this like if you have if 10% of your population is immigrants and they don't necessarily all speak Icelandic well enough to read laws like this is yep. something that's needed i
0: yeah. was thinking about it it was just like, yeah it's true and it's actually almost 15% because there's a very large yes the population of Iceland is changing dramatically in terms of the demographic and a lot of people are are polish that's the largest um yeah. group of foreign nationals. And then I think it's like Lithuanian and it kind of goes from there. But yeah, it's changed a lot. And So we, as- need, the
1: laws in- so we need the laws in Polish. We need the English.
0: Yeah. Mean, that should be automatic, in my opinion, because of the amount of Polish people that live here. And this is something where I'm actually planning to get a person on or a couple people on to talk about their experiences as a Polish person here, because that has also surprised me regarding how many people have been discriminated against or have felt like they needed to basically like alter their names, things like this, in order to get jobs, in order to exist. And of course, then there are people who don't have the same experience. But I think we need to kind of hear more about this largest group of foreign nationals here that often get looked over. You know, this uh, Polish translation of the news, for instance, ha- was not happening until fairly recently, until COVID basically it became a lot more prevalent on like roof and places like this. And I'm listening to myself like, these people have been here for decades.
1: <laughs> you know, like this yeah. is a little it's bizarre. Before Polish as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's just basically two people who are doing this, yeah. um, which means that the news that these, that Polish people, Polish speakers, right. and and the English speakers too. Yeah. Um, the news that they're getting is really heavily filtered. yeah. Um, and Absolutely. controlled by a small number of people, some of whom are, you know, some of whom are very nice people. We know about the local newspaper in English, mm-hmm. but you get a limited amount of information that way. Yes. I, I'm, I'm glad that you're doing that. Um, and also once again would like to encourage the Icelandic um, government to hire a translator to have your laws translated. I am happy to quit my job and do that whole time. <laughs> <laughs> FYI. PSA. <laughs> so, yes, yeah. Yeah. And my last
0: question for you, and I will put here a little link for or at least the call for people to check out the link uh, of Quake, which we didn't talk a lot about. And actually, maybe before I get into the last question, because we did like when I talked to Euler, it was quite fascinating. Like I mentioned to you, you even said that she is quite the force. And you've mentioned you've read Quake 23 times. <laughs> so did you feel like when you were reading it? And translating it, drawn in, like what about Quake was really um, resonated with you? Um,
1: how do I don't say this? Uh, yeah. yeah, that's right. Just a little meow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What was I? Well, I was commissioned to, just for like full transparency, I was commissioned to translate this, and I hadn't read it before. Um. Mm-hmm. They pronounce it Dottir books, but it's so the founder of Dottir, which would be Dottir, um, yeah. is Jennifer Baumgardner, who is a um, the granddaughter of Icelandic immigrants, mm. and um, so she um, she brought the book to my attention and commissioned me to translate it. I think it was, uh, I think it was. I think it was Oedish. Um So I've read it 23 times in translation, and I don't, I don't know how much either told you about what the book is in English versus what it is in Icelandic. Um, no, she didn't say that. So the book is normally from Icelandic to English. Um, books get longer by about 100 <laughs> words per 1,000 words. Okay, interesting. Um, th- I mean, that's partly because we use articles, right? And there's a mm-hmm. sort of t- in this case, when I finished my first draft, it was around ninety thousand words. Um, the final submitted draft, so the book mm-hmm. is eighty thousand in Icelandic. The final submitted draft that went to pub was around sixty-five thousand. Mm. So the book is actually much slimmer in English mm-hmm. than it is in Icelandic because we there were, we made some structural changes together to it. Okay, um, this is partly partly because so much time had passed between when either wrote it and when it was translated. okay. Uh, partly to move the story along. It, w- it was partly editorial as well, um, because Jennifer and I thought of it as a new book. Mm. It was an adaptation. It is still storischkofte. There are just mm. a few scenes removed. The ending is different. Um, but either and I sat down one day, and we talked about this ending and then she mm-hmm. said to me, why don't you just write it? Okay. And I said, yes. <laughs> and so I did. I wrote the ending and we, you know, changed up some chapters, cut out some dialogue, stuff like that. Um, and she worked worked with me through the process of revising the book into a new thing. Mm. In English, a new story in English. And I think that is how I became so obsessed with it. Mm. It's because I treated this book differently than almost anything I've ever worked on. And although, again, like Cold Moons is my favorite book I've ever translated. um, Quake is a close second. I mean, they're different genres. It's just because everything about this feels like it's something that I I gave. Yeah,
0: you co-created. I mean, you wrote the ending, which is pretty amazing for an author to also say you know what, I think it's actually best to hand this over to you and I trust you to do this justice. That's really cool.
1: She. There was a really cool moment we had. So I, I was having some neurological problems earlier this year when we were finishing, when we were entering the final stages of the translation. I was having really weird memory symptoms and disorientation. Mm. And like, um, what is it called? Disarticulation. Like, it couldn't it, talk. Mm. Um, Okay, this was wow. stress this was caused by stress as well we eventually found mm-hmm. out but um mm-hmm. I ended up seeing uh Kaori Stefanson, who mm-hmm. consulted in the process of um writing, writing. and I think he also may have in some capacity helped her as a neurologist I don't know mm-hmm. um but he told me so we sat down in his office we were going to talk about my symptoms and we ended up talking mm-hmm. about um, we talked about my symptoms a little bit, but he was mainly like, girl, you are just stressed out. But in his, wow. in his like, Calvary Suffolk way, right? Yeah. I
0: mean, it's kind of much more like a uh, sure. direct curmudgeon, like cut the stress. <laughs> cut
1: the stress. Yeah, exactly. I interviewed <laughs> him. I, and it was, I, I really, I mean, I know people have mixed maybe. feelings about him. I am really, yeah. I also have mixed feelings about him, but I have positive feelings for him mm-hmm. as well. Um. Anyway, so he told me a story. So he was trying to explain this book to me a little bit more and help me to, ne- to understand the neurology behind someone with either this type of epilepsy, which I believe mm-hmm. is called frontal epilepsy, but I don't, I don't remember right now. Oh, okay. um, uh-huh, funny. Um, and he told me a story about another woman who had had this type of epilepsy. Mm. Um, a story that he had told either right after the book came out. Okay, um, is that one of his patients was standing on the corner by the university. I think by where, um, by the roundabout mm-hmm. she looked across the street she, she started having one of these seizures. It wasn't, I don't know. It wasn't a grandma's seizures. It was an absence seizure yeah. and doctors don't kill me if I use the wrong term. But um, she looked across the street and saw herself getting onto a bus. And Whoa. watched herself for an extended period of time. And so I talked to either about this and I said, you know, we're talking about making this new ending. Um, I think this is the direction we take. And she gasped and turned to me and said, Meg, that's what I wanted to do after he told me that story. Ooh. So it's like our minds converged and became one. And we realized this was the solution. Um, and it's. I think it's a really exciting ending to the book as well. Mm-hmm. I think it's really satisfying for readers when they get there. And I don't mm-hmm. think that will be um, I'm happy to explain what the earlier ending was if people want to ask. Okay. Uh, yeah.
0: Fun. Cool. Nice. Yeah, it was nice, like, kind of uh, including of interesting people, including Kaure <laughs>
1: <laughs> That creature. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah his, exactly. Yeah.
0: I mean, he's been so influential here, and with Deco, so he's the creator, owner, founder, and lead of Decode Genetics. For people who don't know, and I actually, I'll put maybe the in the description the link to the interview that I did do with him. It's it, that year. I think it was in twenty twenty, maybe. This is before any you know COVID stuff. No, actually, maybe it was earlier than that. Twenty nineteen. Wow, I don't know, but um, it was fascinating. Like you said, like just sitting down and talking with him is not a regular conversation by any means. No. And I feel like you almost have to be prepared to interact with him. Yeah, because uh, he he throws out a couple of just random things to kind of almost, I think, in some ways, test
1: <laughs> to see what kind of person you are. So um, and, and you know, and I think he and I ended up having this really joyful interaction by the mm-hmm. end of book really happy and I don't know in the way that like when you have a you meet a new person and you just they make you very happy um, yeah oh
0: fuck what was I going to do oh it's okay
1: <laughs> um but he you know he is like again this wind mm. that i bring. he does things to mm-hmm. make gusts and he wants the gusts to push against you but I am always ready mm-hmm. so I couldn't um... <laughs> I'm sorry, Ragnar is doing this really cute thing. Um, I couldn't be caught off guard. Um, But you do have to be prepared for him because instead of asking, um, what do you think he says, um, you don't agree, question mark.
0: Yeah, I (laughs) expect. Yeah. Okay, so last question. Yeah. Which is, what is your favorite Icelandic word or phrase?
1: Yes. Um, I love this. I have, I have now come up with two. Okay, awesome. Number one is the word that caused me to start writing my own poetry in Icelandic, which stemmed out of a a collaboration with a woman who's translating my poetry into Icelandic. Hmm. Um, the word is Havrot H-A-V-R-O, okay. with an accent, T, mm-hmm. and it means a... So, literally, it means the root of the sea or sea root. Mm. And what it is, is, a, like, um, it's a sudden storm at sea, the kind that might suck a ship underwater. Whoa. Like a root. So, root, I mean, root in Icelandic also means, like, as it means in English, multiple things, like, to root around, um, to grow a root, et cetera. Mm. So, that is actually my favorite, um, my favorite, favorite Icelandic word right now. Um, Then there's this one, which I think is particularly good for this conversation. Mm -hmm. Y-R-K-J-A means to compose a poem or to compose. So it can be composed of work prose as well, Um, I think. But it also means to till a field or to cultivate and I think that this is sort of a perfect Magnus taught me this word because it was in one of the poems in cold moons. And it was a pun that I missed obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that this is sort of a perfect articulation of what my poetics are, um, mm-hmm. which is that, uh, you know, they come from, they come from the earth and if the earth isn't there anymore, then I mm-hmm. should, well, number one, then I shouldn't be there anymore. Um, but then I'm, I'm very much responsible for it. And, and, Controlled by it, so. Nice, great. Thank you for sharing that. I just put it up because
0: people are always asking, <laughs> like, "What are these words? What are like?" Because and when, like, if you're used to seeing Icelandic or saying uh, or yeah, speaking, it's like for me, I often have to if I don't know the word immediately, I I need to see it written. Just to wrap my ra- my mind around it, right? Like good enough. I said we we're talking about something the other day. And I was like, can we just write that down for a second? And then all of a sudden it just snapped for me. And I was like, oh, okay. But you know, it can either be just when you speak any language, you're so used to saying the word that maybe some things you um kind of curve around.
1: So it doesn't sound as strongly as when you see the word itself, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. I when I get really um when I get really hyper and I'm around someone who's Icelandic and we have a whiteboard, I will transcribe what they are saying mm. on the whiteboard. Or if they're talking in it to me in English, I actually will translate it, it just, just for a fun exercise and just check against them. Whatever, like yeah if what I'm transcribing is correctly transcribed in Icelandic. Interpretation and translation, let me tell you, are two very different fields. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, talking of thank you for listening.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for sharing so many interesting things that we talked about today. You know, we went from life here to translating to the many different languages that you've learned and are learning. And so, and of course the book Quake itself, so which is.
1: <laughs> Buy your copy. Mm-hmm. Click the link below. There- check out the book. There so, will be yeah. a recording probably of the American Scandinavian Foundation conversation mm. between me and there. Uh, who's a rather famous translator, um, and Tina Rapslottis, who made the Icelandic film of the book.
0: Yes.
1: Yeah, I heard about this coming out. I was like, oh, this is like really getting a lot of attention. That's awesome. They're looking at, there's some possibility that my translation will also become... It happens a lot that when you translate books and they get really popular, that you get approached by film agents. This has happened to me three times, and I still have zero movies. So we'll see. Hey, maybe fourth times a (laughs) charm. You know, you never know. I'll send you the link with. um, Yeah, I'll send you the link for that. The American Scandinavian Foundation talk because I think it'll be really good. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you.
0: Well, Meg, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking your time out. Safe travels to you because you were going to be traveling soon. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure everyone really got some great insights into life as a translator, but also as this polyglot is <laughs> conquering one or maybe multiple languages at a time. It sounds like you've got a couple of different ones that you're just <laughs> little,
1: little bits of languages at a time. It's like eating from three different cakes Nice. And then eventually you eat the whole cake, maybe. Yeah, you get air. <laughs> Sometimes. Thank you. Thank so you. Much. Thank you.